We've looked at a number of characteristics of Father Abraham, the father of the faithful. Of course, we've seen that he was the father not just of many nations, but also of all those who believe. I believe even at the end of time, maybe even especially at the end of time. Looked at a number of his characteristics. He was a stranger and a pilgrim. He was willing to leave that which was comfortable and, and do that painful work of detachment as well as attachment. Um, we've seen also how, how um, Abraham was, um, was somebody who was regular in his, um, and intentional in his worship and his teaching and his instruction. He built altars on, on a regular basis wherever he went. And uh, what an example that is. Today we're going to be looking at another characteristic of Abraham. We could look at many. In fact, as I've studied his life, I found that there's just so many, um, so many attributes of Abraham. Um, besides his lying part, that, um, that is rather troubling. Um, but uh, there's so many attributes of Abraham that we can learn from, that we can, uh, we can, we can see counsel, instruction, and, and I guess a model for us living in the last days. Um, when we look, for example, at the story of the, that, uh, the rescue of the kings of the valleys, Sodom and Gomorrah and the others, and uh, we see how Abraham would not take any money any reward from those, the plunder of those cities. And um, you remember what he said? He said, lest anyone say that, that, um, that you have made Abraham rich. In other words, the wealth of Sodom was not what he wanted. He wanted, to, he wanted people to know that he was prosperous, if he was prosperous, because God blessed him. It wasn't because he won the lottery or, or you know, something that was was not, I mean, he didn't, he didn't approve of the lifestyle and, and all in the cities, so he couldn't um, be enriched by it. But um, today we're going to look at just briefly at another characteristic of Abraham. It, it impresses me as I look at his life, as I look at his character. It impresses me that he was always giving. He was always working to try to, um, to bless others and benefit others. So um, <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, you can just look with me. Um, we're going we're gonna to begin with... Um, with some passages from the life of Abraham here. And uh, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 13. And uh, this is uh, verses 8 and 9. Genesis chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. You'll remember that uh, when Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, there were some family members who came with him. And um, a number of relatives. I'm sure it wasn't just Abram and Sarah and a few goats that left Ur of the Chaldees. They must have been a, a group of them. Um, but one of those who came was his, uh, his brother's son, um, Lot. And, of course, Lot becomes famous or infamous later on um, because of his own decisions that were somewhat different than those of Abraham. And you know what? As I think of this, the contrast between Abraham's decisions and Lot's decisions, don't you think it, those, those, those two sort of pathways still exist today? I mean... Um, it wasn't that Lot wasn't a, a, a person who loved the Lord. It's just that he didn't prioritize, perhaps, the, um, the obedience of, of God and applying the things that he knew to be true in his life. But this is what happened. Abraham is very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. It says in verse 2, he, he settles. And verse 5, Lot also, which went with Abraham, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them, it says, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. Verse 7 says there was strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and Perizzite dwelt there in the land. 
verse, verse 8 now says, And Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. This is, uh, this is, we could just stop right there for a minute, couldn't we? There's always going to be differences that arise right? There's always going to be cause for contention. There's always going to be something that comes up and says, well, we don't see eye to eye. And in the church, there's always going to be those opportunities. I suppose Korean churches have those, those opportunities as well, um, perhaps. Um, but I know in the churches that I've pastored, in the churches I've been a member of, um, there's, there's, there's sometimes have been, have been issues that arose. And, you know, it's really amazing to me the um, the type of issues that churches will split over i mean you know you have the proverbial color of the carpet right <clears throat> um which color are we going to put carpet we're going to put in the sanctuary and churches get into <clears throat> knock down drag out fights over <clears throat> such trivial things like that <clears throat> i've heard stories of you know churches that couldn't agree on what kind of food to bring to potluck and um I mean, what's the point of having potluck if, you're gonna, if, if you don't get along well enough to agree on these things, you know? Um, I even heard of one church that they decided that, you know, you shouldn't use aluminum pans to cook anymore. And some people said, well, why the big deal? And the church split over whether they'd use aluminum pans to bring food to potluck or not. And um, I, I look at these things and I think we need to follow the example of Abraham. I mean, Abraham said, look, there's problems here. There's stress between us. Um, this is not worth fighting over, right? This isn't something, and we're not going to fight over this for, because we are, what does he say? We're brethren. There's more that unites us than that which divides us, right? We're not going to fight over these things that aren't really that important anyway. And, um, you know, I'll be honest with you. Um, I, if, if I hate the color of the carpet, it won't really bother me that much. Do you ever notice that <clears throat> you go to church long enough, you don't even notice the color of the carpet? Yeah. I mean, what does that take, three weeks? Um, you just really don't. I mean, it's like your own house. You, you know, you, if you have a cluttered corner somewhere, after a while you don't see it anymore. But when someone, when someone walks in that's never seen it before, it jumps out at them. Or when you go to someone else's house, you know what I'm talking about, right? You just tune it out. Like, we don't need to fight over these things. I'd rather die early from, I don't know, Alzheimer's from having aluminum pans or something and, and, and have a fellowship while I'm alive than live my life with, with my stomach tied in knots and enmity and bitterness and, and resentment because we've been fighting over something that's so trivial. Like we have eternity to get along. If we can't get along now, what are we going to do throughout all of eternity? I don't like the color he painted. You know, he should have used gold instead of silver on in my neighbor's house. Um, you know, in, in heaven, I suppose... There's going to be personalities still, right? We're still going to have uniqueness and we're still going to do things differently. But the good news is that in heaven, we're all going to get along and um, we're all going to be brethren. Well, I say we're brethren now. We should all get along. So there are many things in Abraham's life that we can just look at and say, wow, if we could just apply this to our life, we can see why Abraham could be called the father of the faithful. Abraham said, um, let no strife be between me and you, for we are brethren. Verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself, I pray you, from me. If you will take the left hand, I will go to the right hand. If you will depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And so Abraham is very simple. He's like, look, um, there's, there's a whole world out there, right? There's no point in, in us fighting together. And you know, there's some other wisdom here in what Abraham did. I think Abraham was a pretty wise man. He had, a, he had that steady 
calm hand that, that um, we read about in Patriarchs and Prophets yesterday, that um, as he governed his household. Um, Abraham could have said, well, we need conflict resolution. We need to get these herdsmen together, and we need to say, okay, this is what, how we're going to deal with these processes. You all have problems. You shouldn't be getting angry and throwing rocks at the other herds and stuff, and, and you need to you know, start. He could have just tried to deal with the problem. You understand what I'm saying? And um, because technically we're brethren, our workers work for us, right? We should be able to get along here. And yet Abraham knows that not, it's, not always, it's not always wise to put yourself in positions where there's going to be perpetual conflict. You understand what I'm saying? And I was thinking about that the other day. You know, I was thinking about how, how when we... Sometimes, sometimes we, we deal with the fruit and not the root. You know, it's easy for us to get excited about the problems and, and try to fix the, the fruit that we see without dealing with the root of the problem. Sometimes we need to be much more proactive and back up a step or two and say, and say this is what we're going to do. When, when we talk about, I don't know much about raising kids because I don't have any kids, but I did work with teenagers for 15 years. And so I knew a little bit about teenagers and I was boys dean and so forth and taught and, and um, I've learned a little bit through the years. And one thing that I've learned is that you know, it's not good enough just to, just to chastise your kids for, for getting into a problem or, or for misbehaving in a certain situation. Sometimes it's best for us just not to allow them to be put in that situation. They never realize they weren't, and you don't, you know, but you never have to deal with the issue. It's called being proactive, isn't it? Um, I remember one of the things that I really appreciate, um, you know, my, uh, I, I've heard different Adventists from my generation say things like this. Well, I, I grew up, I hated Sabbath because I couldn't do this and I couldn't do this and I couldn't play with the ball and I couldn't ride my bike and I couldn't do this and I couldn't do this. And there's a whole laundry list of what you couldn't do. Uh, meanwhile, my parents were out, uh, you know, in the bedroom sleeping all afternoon. And, um, and I thought, wow, you know, I never grew up that way. My parents were very conservative. They, they were trying to follow the Bible and the spirit of prophecy as well as, well as they could. I don't think they would claim to be perfect parents, and I don't think they're perfect parents, but they tried. They tried hard. Um, and there were things that we didn't do on Sabbath. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But I'll tell you one thing. I don't, remember, I don't remember being confronted with those brick walls very often where, you know, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. Um, what I remember is my parents took us hiking on Sabbath afternoon. They did out, we were doing things together with them on Sabbath afternoon. And what happens is if you're proactive, well, then the kids never realize that they can't do something because you already planned for something, uh, something for them to do, right? And so, so Abraham is using a principle here. He's not just dealing with the fruit and trying to micromanage a situation. He's trying to say, let's avoid the situation to begin with. And let's let's uh, let's let's separate from each other. Um, you know, I've I've watched some of the parents that I really admire, the parents that that have kids that um, have turned out well. As I'm sure I'm sure if I knew you all better, I would be I would be learning much more from your families as well. But some of the families that I've just really admired, I've noticed there's something in common with them. They have they have stayed a step ahead of their kids. In 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 um, you know. Ellen White says that we have a responsibility to choose our friends for our kids. And um, you think, well, how in the world are you going to do that? You know, I mean, kids just feel like friends naturally happen. Well, the way I've seen it happen is that, is that um, instead of the kids saying, Mom, can I go over to, to uh, you know, Billy's house? 
or Joey's house or whoever's house, um, the parents have already invited the kids over to their house, you see? And let's have a party next week. Let they're, they're staying ahead. And so, so I, a number of these families that I've admired from a distance or from close up, I've watched, and, and their house is sort of like party central. I mean, it must be a lot of work. It must be a lot of work, you know? But they're always, and that's how they choose their kids. They're inviting the kids over to their house and doing fun things. And, 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 and so they don't have to say no. They don't have to say you can't spend time with them because they're filling the lives of their kids with good things. So the, the, the example we see from Abraham is being proactive. He's saying, let's not just try to fix the problem here. Let's avoid the situation that brings about the problem to begin with. Is not the whole land before you? Now, this is very interesting because um, I think in the Eastern culture and the culture that Abraham would have been from in a patriarchal culture, he would have been the, uh, as the elder, he would have been the one that was eligible for the first choice, right? We're all familiar with that fact. I mean, it's, it's quite amazing that Abraham is of the character that he didn't say, look, I'm going here. Why don't you just go over? Why don't you just go over there? But we're talking today about Abraham's quality of always giving. And when I talk about the quality of always giving, I'm not talking about philanthropy. I'm not talking about paying your tithes and offerings. What I'm talking about is having a heart that doesn't think of me, that thinks of others. That's what I'm talking about. Remember, we, we touched on it um, earlier this week. We talked about how the great controversy really could be distilled into a contrast between the character of God and the character of of the enemy, right? The character of Satan. Selfishness versus unselfishness. Uh, Self-love versus agape love. Agape love seeks not its own, right? And it, it, it doesn't even, when it gives, it doesn't expect anything in return. It loves unconditionally. That's agape love. And the character of God is such that he doesn't think first of what do I get out of this situation, but what can I give in this situation. That's the first impulse of the heart of God. And as we become like Christ, as we are, our hearts are transformed, our first impulse will become also not what can I get out of this situation, but what can I give in this situation. And Abraham is, even though culturally, and, and I'm sure it's just a matter of common sense and ethics, that um, Lot should have had the second choice. Abraham instinctively gives Lot the first choice, even though he's his his, his nephew. And um, perhaps just as surprising as Abraham's uh, behavior is Lot's behavior, in my mind. I mean, I mean Lot should have been uh, a, you know, a quick thinker enough um, that he would have said, look, um, I'm the nephew, you're the uncle. I followed you here. You're the one that is our patriarch that instructs us in the ways of God. You take the first pick. I'll take the second pick. I want to tell you something, though. When we, when we allow ourselves to be the giver, when we allow ourselves to be the one who gets the second choice, the second pick, we never will actually end up the loser. Isn't that something? I really believe that, that um, when Lot looked out, Lot did not have the always giving um, agape love heart that his uncle Abraham had, it seems to me. Because when he looked out, he said, oh, sure, I'll take first choice. And he looked out, he looked over the, the, the landscape, and there's options to choose from. Now, up here where they're at, where Abraham has chosen to dwell, is sort of in a remote area. It was in a high area, and if you know anything about that part of the world, um, it's, it, the, the valleys down by the rivers are where the green grass is growing. 
um, that's sort of like an oasis along the rivers. And the hill country is dry, it's arid, it's practically desert, it's scrub type of place, you know. And here they are, they're looking around, and, and Lot says, well, I can go anywhere I want. Um, obviously, my, my herds are going to grow fatter, they're going to grow faster, they're going to be healthier if they're down there in the valley. Down there where that green grass is, that verdant, those verdant fields that are just lush with plenty of food for my, for my livestock. And Lot says, I'll take the valleys. I'll, I'll go down there. Abraham says, fine, I'll stay up here. Now, common sense would say that Lot, in the end, is going to be the winner financially, you know, economically, and Abraham's going to be the loser. Well, the problem is, and um, we won't take a lot of time to talk about... Um, living in the cities because uh, we've heard some of that in the mornings of uh, Jane's testimony and this testimony that we've been have been has been shared from spirit of prophecy um, but lot moving close to this city um, I don't think if you read the story I don't think that he actually said I'm gonna move into Sodom and Gomorrah or Sodom um, but he moved close to the city and pretty soon you know the, his kids friends were from the city and they were doing more things in the city and and it just sort of gradually pretty soon they said well you know you know when we go shopping it's sort of a pain and and um, and uh, you know let's let's get a city house so we can stay over there on the weekends be with our friends and whatever and pretty soon they were just living in Sodom and that's just sort of the way it works it's sort of a gradual you don't even you don't even realize how this happened that you're you're all of a sudden you're in a place where and it's not that Lot believed in the lifestyle of Sodom I I, I have every confidence that Lot was a present truth God-fearing man, but he didn't take action on what he believed. You know? And sometimes it's, we think it's good enough just to believe and know the truth. And, um, and, and Lot lost his family. And in the end, if we can just look at the head of the story here, um, in the end, I mean, not only did they go through the trial of the captivity, capture, and fall of Sodom, and in the end, Sodom is burned with fire and brimstone by the by, the, by an act of God. And Lot ends up losing most of his family, including his wife. He ends up losing all of his possessions. And Abraham, living up there in the scrub, his wealth is continuing to grow. You know, there's a song that says, little is much when God is in it. And... Um, I know it's hard for some people who have made decisions to, you know, for, on, for spiritual reasons, for, for matters of conviction, make decisions that aren't economically the wisest decisions or the most prosperous decisions. But I can tell you that in the end, God blesses. And um, the Bible, Jesus' teaching is so relevant still today when he says, what shall it profit a man? if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul. Um, what are we willing to trade our salvation for? What are we willing to trade our children for? Um, Abraham takes second choice. He ends up probably where he would have chosen to be anyway. Um, but he ends up in the end having a massive household blessed beyond belief. Um, financially as well as spiritually, and Lot loses everything. And um, what a what a story that is. And by the way, you know I don't often think of it too much, but Abraham watched the whole thing happen, didn't he? Yeah. 
we don't find any record of interaction between Abraham and Lot after, you know, he goes to the little town of Zor. And, and, um, but Abraham was there, we know, up from the hills watching Sodom and, destroy, and Gomorrah being destroyed because of that, that dialogue that he had with the angels the day before and with the Lord the day before. Uh, we know Abraham was still around and how his heart must have grieved to see the fruits of the decisions that Lot had made and um, the suffering that it caused his family. So here we have an example of Abraham being willing to take second choice, always giving. Let's look at another, another example, shall we? Another example is found in Genesis chapter 14, just the next chapter, verses 18 through 20. Now this is the story of the battle of the kings. And um, you remember that there were these these four kings that came against um, the kings of the valleys, of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the, of the valley. And um, the four kings overcame the five kings, and they took Sodom and Gomorrah captive. Now, when, when someone escaped, they uh, came, and run, came running and told Abraham. Verse 12 says, they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, in Sodom, and his sons, and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, uh, brother of Ishkel and brother of Aner. These were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, his, his nephew, he armed his trained servants, um, 318, pursued uh, them unto Dan. And um, here we have the story of how this takes place. He divides himself up. Abraham is not just a, uh, a, a wise man, a godly man, a, a, a one who intentionally instructs his family and around the, the family altar. Um, he's not just a man who's always giving. Evidently, he's sort, of a, he's sort of a tactical mind, too, you know? I mean, here he is. He can't be that experienced in war. I don't know. I mean, but somehow he has the he has the ability to plan an attack, strategic attack. He divides into companies and and times it and so forth. I suppose he figured that they would also be celebrating and drunk and who knows what else that probably helped his case. But um, his 318 soldiers attack these four kings and they rout them, pursue them, and. Um, they they completely completely uh, completely overrun the uh, the fleeing uh, soldiers and the fleeing soldiers leave all the goods that they've plundered out of the out of the cities of the valley, and um, all these goods are now gathered up. And notice what happens in verse eighteen. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. So Abraham here says, Look, I recognize that this is increase, because that's what tithe, we pay tithe on increase, right? I recognize that this wealth, that has come into our possession is from God. It's God blessing us with this increase. He paid tithes on it. He gave it all. I, I could imagine this was a rather significant amount of tithe, don't you think? I mean, this is the wealth of the cities of the valleys, you know? This is, this is the plunder of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a lot of wealth here. I don't know what Melchizedek did with all that tithe, honestly. Um, we call that in, in Adventist language in the last uh, 10 years, we've had a phrase that we've heard quite a bit. Well, 
uh, as a member of the executive committee of the General Conference, I've heard it quite a bit. It's called Extraordinary Tithe. Extraordinary Tithe. What, what's, what's Extraordinary Tithe? I mean, tithe is tithe, right? 10% of our increase. Well, let me just tell you, a couple of years ago, not a couple of years ago, about 2007 or so now, I think, there was a, there was a family, um, an Adventist family, who had worked very, very hard. And um, the father had started a uh, sort of an assisted living center, and, um, and it had done well. And so he had bought other property in another part of the country, and it had done well. And pretty soon he was buying and building in throughout all of Europe, assisted living centers all over America. He became either the largest or one of the largest um, privately owned assisted living um, organizations in the world. Now, um, unfortunately, um, this was back 2006, 7, somewhere around there, he, um, he developed cancer, the father, and, um, and he, ha he was given about six months to live. Well, the family came together. They have adult sons and children that were involved in running the business. The family came together, and uh, the family said, what, what should we do with this company? What should we do with the business? And the they really decided that it was time to sell it. Um, the father was going to be dying soon unless God intervened. The sons really didn't want to continue running it. The family didn't want to continue running it. And by the way, the real estate market was at its peak of its bubble. And they decided to, to sell their family company. And um, they had built it very carefully, avoiding debt, paying cash. They had, they had a, they, their, their employees loved to work for them. They're just down to earth, treated people right, honest, fair, just, you know, did business the way a Christian should do business. And they were blessed. And um, so they sold their company. And um, they approached the church, the conference in the area where they were at, and they said, what do we do? We, need a, we want to pay tithe on the increase, on the sale of this company. And um, how do we go about doing that? Do we just put it in our local church? Um, do, we, do we just write the check to the conference? Because um, that's what often, you know, this happens. But this was even so big that the conference, it would just completely skew the... And then all of the different, you know, because a certain percentage comes back to the conference, certain comes back to the union, and, and it would just be... And so the conference said, you know, you really, you really should go to the G general conference. This is a global type of situation. So, so they went to the general conference, and they, they talked to the general conference. They said, you know, we don't want to make, you know, what do you do with extra tithe for, for a year or two? You don't just, you can't hire a pastor, a new pastor, or more pastors or whatever. What, it's, it's not going to be there next year, you know. Um, so what do you do? And so they, they, they agreed with the church leadership, the treasurer and others, um, that this tithe would be set into a fund that would be used as tithes should be used, but it would be used as for special projects to especially advance the work of God around the world. And it would be divided up among the divisions. It wouldn't just be something that their conference got. It would be divided around the world. So they wrote a check. It was a personal check, a small check. It wasn't like a business check. It was a personal check. I've seen the check. Like the treasurer kept it. I don't know how that worked. I guess they don't need your checks anymore when you cash them or A personal check, and in the memo it said tithe. 
The check was for $120 million. Can you imagine what someone, a bank teller, <laughs> said when they saw the questions they had about tithe as a result of that? Um, but they were going to pay, they were going to be faithful to the God who had blessed them. And that work, that tithe has done an amazing work around the world. It is incredible what has happened. Um, uh, all over India, Africa, um, there's, there, we have well-established media ministries going out in different languages, new languages, new work, all kinds of things have been expanded because of the generosity of, or the faithfulness, I should say, of that family. So here Abraham, he pays tithes. It must have been extraordinary tithe, which he pays to Melchizedek. And um, notice what happens after that. It says in verse 20, um, verse 21, the king of Sodom said unto Abram, give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. I mean, Abraham really, I think Abraham had already, by paying tithes, uh, given evidence that, that he rightfully could have considered these goods to be his own goods, right? I mean, he rightfully could have kept them. In fact, it's almost like he did take possession of them long enough to pay tithe out of them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, he, he said, this is my increase. I'm going to pay tithe. But now that I've paid the tithe, notice what he says. Um, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, verse 22, I lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went over me, with me. Um, that's the, um, the other, his, his, his um, he, he had some, some, what does he call them, confederates. <laughs> um, some of these others who were around him, his neighbors. Let them take their portion, but I will take nothing. Abraham did not want anyone to say that there was the wealth of Sodom that made him wealthy. He wanted people to know that it was God's blessings. As he followed the principles of righteous living, it was God's blessings that prospered him. And so these others may take their portion. I'm not going to take anything. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give it all back. Um, notice how he did take up for these other friends of his, though, you know? Um, he, didn't, he didn't require them to have the same thing, the same selflessness that he had. You know, it's just, it's just, don't you start to admire Abraham? He just seems to have this magnanimous mind that he's saying, listen, I'm not going to take anything. I'm sure he could have used it for God's cause or something, right? But I'm not going to take anything. But I'm not going to make other people have the same altruism that I have. I'm not going to require everyone else to give to the same degree that I'm giving. And while we're talking about these confederates of his that helped him with this battle, um, let's just think about that for a minute. Um, the Bible said there in verse 13, he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anar, and these were confederate with Abram. So in other words, he's up here where, you know, it's not where Lot chose, it's where he chose up in the plains of, of Mamre. And and here he is, he's trying to stay safe and unpolluted from the world, right? I mean, isn't that what he's trying to do? He's trying to live a godly life. So that means he probably has nothing to do with his neighbors because they were, they were heathens, weren't they? Do you think that's what happened? 
I mean, this is pretty amazing from just this little reference, by the way, right? These guys were willing to say, you're going out to fight them? We'll go with you. Abraham had won the confidence of his neighbors. I can just imagine Abraham would be over there fixing their fences and helping them with what they needed help with. And, oh, you need to, you know, you're doing a, you're doing a special project. I'll send some workers over. We'll come over. Hey, let's, let's have lunch together afterwards. Abraham was not one of these isolationists that said, I'm called to live a holy life. I'm going to move out in the country and I'm not going to know anybody because I don't want to be polluted by the Babylonians. Um, Abraham was friends with people around him. I mean, just the, the, the lessons we can learn from Abraham. It's amazing to me. Abraham, always giving, always living, not to see what he could get, but to see what he could give. Genesis chapter 18 now, the final story we'll look at on this, this quality of Abram. Genesis chapter 18, and uh, we'll begin reading with verse 1. The Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. Now, this is Let's just, let's just get the mental picture. You know, as a kid, I don't know if the, my Bible story or my Bible friends or the Bible story books or whatever, if they had a painting, as you know, there were lots of illustrations. And this, I love the illustrations, don't get me wrong. But sometimes those illustrations sort of, they stick in your mind. And then you don't really use the, your sanctified imagination and uh, the biblical data to imagine what it might have been like, right? It's one of the reasons I have a hard time watching um, biblical movies like I just don't want to do it because those things just get stuck in my mind as if that's how it happened and then when I read the Bible that's what I see instead of my mind and imagination sort of sort of focusing on it and so what I've learned from Abraham since I've studied Abraham more I've come to the realization Abraham was not just living in this little tent by himself with with Sarah you know and two goats Um, his household was comprised of more than a thousand souls. I mean, it was a small city, guys, right? I mean, this was like, this was a major, I mean, there are always people coming and going, right? You would have always had people coming and going. But what Abraham, here Abraham's sitting uh, by his house, it's the heat of the day, and um, that's not usually when people are traveling, I guess, but here he's sitting, and and all of a sudden Abraham sees these three people. Now, what's, it wasn't like nobody ever came by, you understand? There's thousand and more people were coming around that somehow Abraham knows them all and he knows a stranger when he sees one right and so Abraham gets up and he he runs and he says to he, he runs to them and he says he went and bowed himself toward the ground now this is long after Abraham has become even more famous than famous you know I mean if he was well known before the war with the kings You've got to know he was well-known after the war with the kings, right? I mean, everybody knew who Abraham was. He had, I mean, I can't imagine there are very many people out there just sort of living a nomadic life that had over a thousand people in their household. I can't just, I just, I just don't imagine that this was really, really common. I don't know. But um, I'm sure he was well-respected, well-loved, I mean, uh, uh, by his own families. We know people would come just because they wanted to learn from him. Do you think it might be possible if you ran a ministry with a thousand employees or whatever, um, families, hundreds and hundreds of families that worked for you, do you think it might be possible that it might start to go to your head a little bit? You know what I'm saying? I mean, I've seen that happen, even ministries. I hate to say it, 
but I've been involved with a lot of different ministries, and I've seen heads of ministry that really sort of get, they don't have the time of day for you unless you have money. And, um, and it's like, Abraham, the great man that he was, the friend of God that he was, the wealthy man that he was, the respected, famous man that he was in the whole region, Abraham goes down, he doesn't even know who these three people are, but he bows himself to the ground. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's just, it just to me, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling the way Abraham carries himself. Why? Because he's not thinking of self. This always giving. It's not just talking about money or whatever. He's, he's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of others. He's, he, he, he doesn't think of himself as being too important to be humble and to entreat these strangers in. And this is what he says. He bows down to, toward the ground. He says, my Lord, again, addressing them very respectfully. If now I have found favor in your sight, don't pass away, I pray you, from your servant. Let a little water, I pray, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort your hearts, and that ye shall pass on, for therefore you have come to your servant. And they said, so do as thou hast said. I mean, I'll just get a little water, and a little morsel of bread, you know, a snack. Well, lo notice what he does. Abraham said to Sarah, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes on the hearth. He ran unto the herd and fetched a calf, tender and good, gave it unto a young man, said, Haste to dress it. He took butter and milk and the calf he had made and said, I mean, he made a regular, I mean, this was the royal treatment, you know, a special meal he gave for these visitors. A little morsel, a little water. Um, he was being humble, wasn't he? He sat there. Uh, set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they ate it. What I see here is that once again, Abraham is always giving. He doesn't even know who these people are, but he's going to give to them. They could have been, they could have been somebody off the street. It didn't matter. They, you know, Jesus said something similar, didn't he? Didn't he? He, said, he said, when you invite someone, don't just invite the people that can invite you back, right? But invite the poor and the, the homeless. And uh, Abraham, I think, is a, is, a, is a perfect example for how we should live in the last days. He doesn't say, okay, how much money do you have? Are you, are you driving in a nice enough car? Are you wearing name brand clothes? Are you? It doesn't seem to be that was his consideration. He just saw somebody, and he said, that's a new person. I can only imagine this. I can only imagine. This is my imagination. I want to clarify. This is just my, my imagination running rampant here, running wild. So take it or leave it. Take it with a grain of salt. But I can only imagine that the Lord and the two angels that were with him that day, I can only imagine that they dressed in the garb of the locals. Don't you think? I can only imagine they looked like a local person. And I'll just bet you this. I'll just bet you that Abram, when he saw these three people coming down the street, he said, I don't recognize those people. Those are strangers. I want to witness to them. If he'd had a glow track, he would have had one right next to that, <laughs> right next to that veal that he had prepared for them, right? Um, if he, he, he probably was preparing to tell them something about his God. I can just imagine, because that's the way Abraham lived his life. He was always looking for an opportunity. And when opportunities came to him, he was going to take it. I mean, they came to his camp. So he was going to witness to them. And um, that's, that's only how I imagine it. But the Bible does tell us in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2, doesn't it? Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing 
some have unwittingly entertained angels. And we believe this is particularly referring to this story here in Genesis chapter uh, 18, where Abraham not only entertains angels, but we find as the story goes on, that conversation, well, what if I find 50, you know, if you find 50 righteous, will you save Sodom? If you find 30 and 20, 10 and so forth. What, what we find is that God himself was one of those. Jesus himself, the angel of the Lord, was walking down that dusty path in front of Abraham's tent. And Abraham, because he was so anxious to give, because he was so anxious to live to bless others, because he was so anxious to share what God had given him with other people, Abraham became one of the few to fix a meal for the Son of God. I mean, isn't that amazing? Uh, you think Abraham la afterwards said, man, I wish I'd just given that morsel. I had some, you know, some rice cakes or something, some, you know, some crackers or something in the, in the tent. I could have just given. You think, you think he was saying, man, I'm glad I went all out because that, those weren't just guys from the neighboring village. These were messengers from heaven. Oh, what a, what a wonderful privilege. But, you know, we have the privilege, too. The Bible does say, doesn't it? That in, inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. Um, you know, sometimes we take for granted the influence that we can have in people's hearts and lives. You know, we live, we tend to have friends in a similar socioeconomic stratus, right? We tend, we, we tend to be sort of, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But what Jane and I have learned in Dalton is that when you just spend some time, maybe have some people over that are handicapped perhaps, they're living on disability. Some of them may not be the cleanest. They're not the most educated. What you start to notice is, even though we live in a humble home that we bought as a fixer-upper to get out of debt and all, they think they have connections with some of the most important people in the world. I mean, they value every word you say, every minute they, they can spend with you. It's amazing. Just and, and for us, it's like, it's nothing, you know? And it's not that we, I hope we don't see them any different than other people, but we just don't think of our influence being greater. Um, but it is. It's, sometimes they say things or do things and it just strikes you. You realize to them, this is really important. This little bit of time, this little gesture that, that we should have just not even thought about. This is something that they'll think about for years and years to come. And um, don't be forgetful to entertain strangers. Um, we may not have the opportunity of Jesus walking by our street and inviting him in like Abraham had, but we can do so. We can give him our best as we do so to the least of these. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, Paul says, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak, and to remember the words of Jesus Christ, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And it is more blessed to give without, than to receive, isn't it? We don't, we never come up 
short-handed when we give. I've learned, and Jane and I have learned, that you can't outgive God. Amen. When you when you dedicate a portion of your income, a generous portion of your income, besides the tithes, when you give a generous offering, you're not going to go hungry. Like God always repays, He always blesses. And it's one of the reasons I think God wants us to live intentionally, um, carefully with our, li- with our finances and even to, to try to, try to uh, avoid debt or get out of debt as difficult as it is and as long a road as it is for, for many times. Um, because once, once you don't have those burdens, I'll tell you, you can give as, um, as, uh, as uh, Dave Ramsey would say, if you live like nobody else, you'll be able to live and give like nobody else, right? <laughs> I'm looking forward to that experience. Amy Carmichael said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. So what we're talking here is about the heart. I want to make that very clear. I'm not talking about just rotely, mechanically, we ought to give. I'm asking God to give me a heart that's not centered in me, but centered in others. A heart that says, I want to give. I want to love. And when you love, you're going to give. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Winston Churchill said, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. And even though he wasn't a necessarily a godly man that I agree with everything he said. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what he said here. We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. I'll end with this passage from Luke 6 verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Father in heaven, we just want to ask that we would be like our spiritual father Abraham, that uh, we might not just be content to be selfish and, and say, well, I'm Christ, so I'm Abraham's seed, and I'm heirs according to the promise. I want the good things that I can get through being his spiritual descendant. Lord, help us to, help us to do the deeds of Abraham, to live a life of selflessness, of giving, living to give, of loving, and not thinking of ourselves. Oh, Lord. You demonstrated your character when you died upon Calvary's cross, that you would so set self aside that you would give your very life so that, so that your enemies might have a choice of being saved, so that we might be saved. And I pray that you would just be, day by day instill in us the same character that we see on Calvary, that you would make us more and more like you, that you would help us to live to give, always giving as Abraham seems to have been. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.